Some interesting things pop up in your rearview mirror every once in a while. Some of you have probably noticed that, especially driving around Eugene. But I came across some other things. Look at what comes up in some other people's rearview mirror. That's a cow, okay? I don't know how this person got a cow in their rearview mirror, but evidently they live in a little rural community, and it's a scary-looking cow. Let's go to the next one, too. A giant shoe. A giant waterproof boot actually driving down the road, and they took a picture of it. Their window is already knocked out, so evidently they spend a lot too, too much time looking in the rearview mirror and not looking ahead of them, okay? And look at the last one that we put up here. A plane. I don't know if that was photoshopped or not, or if somebody had to make it a, you know, like, a, like an emergency landing, but strange things come up. Today, Christmas is in our rearview mirror. Our tree's already down, cut up, and put in the recycling bin. Christmas is over, ladies and gentlemen. So I thought it would be a good idea to look what happened when the very first Christmas was in people's rearview mirror. What popped up in front of them after that? And there are two things I want to mention today. And the first is this, if you're taking notes. People that don't like you. After Christmas... This is what's going to happen to all of us. We're going to run across people that, this year that simply don't like us. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. I'll put this on our borrowed big screen while our TVs are being repaired. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, get up, take the child, Jesus, and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to try to kill him. So here's Jesus. He is the perfect embodiment, even at a young age, of all that is good and lovely and holy and wonderful, okay? That's what he is. And right off the bat, some people simply don't like him to the point where they wish him dead. Doesn't that make you feel better? It made me feel better when I read this, okay? Because check this out. No matter how wonderful you are, no matter how charming you are, how delightful, how witty you are, if you're like a love child between Bambi and the Easter Bunny, it doesn't matter. There are going to be some people in the world who simply won't like you, who are going to criticize you and hate you and slander you. Now, unlike Jesus, you probably won't be hated to the point where people try to physically kill you, but they'll bring death into your experience in other ways. They'll kill your reputation. They'll kill your sense of self-worth. They'll kill some of your relationships. And their their technique is usually what I call death by paper cuts. They're not going to bring this hate into your life in one big moment. Usually, sometimes that happens. Usually it's a thousand little rude remarks to you or a thousand little slanderous comments or a thousand little juicy tidbits of gossip that they put out in the universe that's all about you. And slowly but surely, these small things add up till something in you dies. Don't expect this to end anytime soon. Sorry, but the people that I admire most in the world all have their critics, their enemies, and haters. That's just how it goes. Elizabeth Gilbert, one of my favorite authors, says, there are people who are not even born yet who are going to reject you. Okay? It's kind of funny, but it's also sadly true. All right? There's a reason some people will hate us, and despite our best efforts to even love them, they'll still hate us, and it has to do with light. I want to put the verse John 3.20 up on this board and read it for you. Everyone who does evil, this is Jesus talking, hates the light and will not come into the light 
for fear that their deeds will be exposed. We are light in this dark world. Jesus calls us that. He says, you're the light of the world. And we radiate light out of us. And sometimes your mere presence is going to make people hate you because the spiritual light that radiates out of your life makes them feel exposed. Simply by being around you, they're going to become suddenly aware of and very ashamed of the shadowy things in their life. And instead of dealing with their shadows and repenting and changing their life, instead they attack the source of life. Jesus knew this would be the case, and he warned his followers. He said, hey, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you too. And you can always tell when you're exposing the shadowy things in people's lives because their response to you emotionally will be way out of proportion for what the situation demands. Like say you're around a person and you say something that should mildly irritate them. Maybe on a scale of 1 to 10 they should give you about a 2 in irritation, but extend, instead they erupt on you and give you a 9 or 10. That's because you're exposing the shadowy things in their life sometimes and they hate you for it, all right? And that's just how it goes. Think of it like this. Imagine yourself right now, and this will be comforting to you. Imagine yourself, you're sleeping in on a lazy Saturday, warm summer morning, okay? And you're in deep REM type sleep. But then someone in your house decides that you've slept in long enough, thank you very much, and they come into your room and they rip open the curtains and the brilliance of the sun shining through your window startles you into awake land, okay? Now, that's what we're like in the world. Light radiates out of us. The Spirit of God radiates out of us. We can't help it. Most people will like that. Most people will say, Woo, that's beautiful. I want that radiance for myself. And other people will absolutely hate you for it. Okay? This is hard for me. Personally, I'm going to admit this. This is super hard. I hate it when people hate me. I do. And yet some people hate me. Any public figure is hated, okay? Most people on the planet are hated. I have people that I've ran across in public who hate me so much they won't look at me. They'll actually turn their head and just pretend I'm not even there. It's, if it wasn't so sad, it would be comical. And it hurts. But I've realized something. I don't have to own their behavior. If I was a total boogerhead to them and they hated me for that, that's different. I would have to own that and make that right. But if they hate me just because... I don't get to own that, okay? That's on them. I have to keep living my life, even if that means living it without their blessing. All throughout his earthly life, Jesus had haters, but he didn't let them stop him from living the life that the Father had planned out for him. And one of the reasons I believe for this is because although he knew there were people in the world with a very low opinion of him, he also knew there were people in the world that didn't share that opinion, that actually had a high opinion of him. For example, when Jesus was just a young little lad, he was brought to the temple, and an older guy in his 80s, um, they, they suppose, a guy named Simeon, saw Jesus for the first time, and in joy, he just exclaimed out loud for everybody to hear, now I can die a happy man, because this is the one I've been looking for, the Savior of the world, Yeehaw! I mean, I added the yeehaw, but it's implied in the verse, okay? And I'm sure his parents recalled this situation over and over to Jesus. This person has a high opinion of you. This person truly admires and loves you. And then there's his own baptism. Jesus, when he was 30, was baptized 
by John the Baptist, and as he came up out of the waters of the baptism, a voice from heaven rang out and said, this is my son. I love him so much, and he's so good. Oh, it's like a triple scoop of joy and blessing that was poured out on Jesus. So, yes, Jesus heard the haters, but he also heard the voices and words of love and affirmation. He heard the truth about himself, and the love won because the love always wins. Hate is like this squeaky wheel that wants to get all of our attention. And it's true. Ten people could say something kind to us, and what do we remember? The one hurtful, hateful thing that was said to us. Don't give all of your attention to the hate. Pay attention to the words of love and affirmation from God and the people around you. Okay? And now, before I move on to the next point, a little bit about the universe. And don't don't worry, this is a little bit of a science lesson, but it's all going to fit together. The universe has been steadily expanding since the beginning of time. That's just the truth. Growing in complexity and size and depth, becoming bigger and more interesting. We need to do the same. We as people need to grow and expand, become bigger people and more interesting because somehow when we copy on a a personal level what's taken place on a molecular and atomic and cosmic level all around us, that's when we really thrive. Because remember... The Greek word for God is this word theos, okay? It's where we get the word theology from. And it means the flow. So in ancient Greece and in ancient Hebrew culture, they referred to God as the flow. This is so wonderful, okay? There's this divine flow of life that we're invited to step into that's happening in all creation, all right? We are called, invited to grow, expand, change, and become more interesting. This is why love always feels better to us than hate does. Because to love is to step into that divine flow of life. Because love expands you, it grows you. When you love others, you expand your social circle, you expand your heart, you expand your life. But to hate is the opposite of that. To hate is to step out of that divine flow of life that's happening in all of creation. Because hate constricts. It shrinks your social circles, okay? It burns bridges. There's nothing expansive or interesting about hate. So please, I beg of you, don't hate those who hate you. And please don't respond to their hate by hiding, by shrinking back, by trying to become less visible and less vocal. No! Keep living your life. Keep being you. Keep going. And don't just go. Grow. Stay in the flow. I want to read two excerpts, two quotes from two people that I admire greatly, and they both had this ability to stay in the divine flow of life in front of them, even though they were hated by many. The first is Martin Luther King. This is a rather famous quote, and he said this, Somehow we must be able to stand up before our most bitter opponents and say this, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. Oh, he stayed in the flow. And another one was a bishop named Nikolai that was alive during World War II, and he was a vocal opponent of the Nazis, as you should be. But some of his other bishops betrayed him into the hands of the Nazis. It was this horrible, hurtful betrayal, and yet he said this. This is his prayer. This guy blows me away. He said, enemies have driven me into your embrace, God, 
more than friends have. Just as a hunted animal finds safer shelter, shelter than an unhunted animal does, so have I, persecuted by my enemies, found the safest sanctuary, having ensconced myself beneath your tabernacle. So bless my enemies, O Lord, even as I bless them and do not curse them. He wouldn't return their hate with hate. Instead, he blessed his enemies. He stayed in the divine flow. That is so amazing to me. The second thing that's going to pop up in our rearview mirror, or pop up in front of us when Christmas is in our rearview mirror, is this, silence. After the first Christmas, we don't hear from or hear even much about Jesus for years and years and years. In fact, from the age of 12 till the age of 30, we know nothing about his life. At the age of 30, he starts his public ministry, this three-year preaching, teaching, and healing tour that ended with his death and resurrection. But from the age of 12 to the age of 30, we've got nothing. In fact, scholars call it the silent years of Jesus. And these years frustrate some people. People want to know, what was Jesus up to? So they make up stuff, okay? But we just don't know. And it doesn't frustrate me. I actually love it. I think the Bible records this on purpose. I think the Bible leaves this big um, gap of Jesus' life blank on purpose because that instructs us about something very important about Jesus himself, that Jesus was a person who embraced silence. Because you've got to know this, central to the Christian tradition is this belief that in order to be a healthy person, in order to be a person connected to God and really centered in your own life and present in every moment, you have to be a person that practices the disciplines of meditation and reflection and silence. You have to set apart great parts of your life for silence. That's why there's verses like this in the Bible. This is out of Psalm chapter 4. Search your hearts and what? Be silent. And then in Psalm 46 it says, Be still, be silent, and know that I am God. Jesus embodied this kind of life. He embraced silence as a priority in his life. And yet this is unfamiliar territory for most of us because we live in a culture of chaos and noise. We seem to be addicted to it. In fact, because of technology, we can carry our chaos around with us 24 hours a day. We can always have noise. Some of you sleep to noise, okay? You sleep to chaos. And when there is silence, sometimes we're so uncomfortable with it, we don't want it around, so we'll fill it with the noise of our own voice. You can tell this when people are on first dates. Remember how I tell you my wife and I always look for couples in restaurants who are on their first dates? They're easy to identify because they're never quiet. Because if they're quiet, they feel so uncomfortable being quiet. One of them just starts talking and the other starts laughing. And then they trade places, okay? There are different kinds of silence, though. There are good silence times, and then there are times of bad silence. We've all experienced bad silence, like the moments we are silent because someone said something so surprisingly mean to us, we're stunned, and we just stand there in the pain and the ache, unable to speak. That's not good silence. That's definitely a bad silence. Or there are the times when we're mad at someone and in a moment of stunning maturity on our part, we decide, I know what I'll do. I'll inflict pain on them by giving them the silent treatment. That's not good silence either. That's bad silence. And then lastly, 
Some of the worst silence, I think, is these two things. First of all, it's the anxious silence. Like when you're in the waiting room of a hospital and you're waiting to hear the news about someone you care for deeply and you don't know if it's going to be bad news or good news and you just sit there in your silent anxiety. Or those 10 minutes before you take the SATs. Do you remember that? This is my future on the line. Ah! And you're just anxiously silent. That's some bad silence. And I think the worst silence is when people refuse to speak out about injustice. I've been listening to a song lately. I've probably listened to it six or seven times. I'm just, you know when you get hooked on a song, you just want to hear it every day? And it's the song, The Sound of Silence. Now, many of you older type folks like me will remember that was written by Paul Simon, and Simon and Garfunkel made it famous. I haven't been listening to their rendition. It kind of bores me just a wee little bit. I've been listening to the rendition by David Draymond. He's the lead singer. You know who this is, don't you? Yes, you do, okay? He's the lead singer to the metal band Disturbed, okay? And he does this version of the song that gives gives me goosebumps, and it gets all rock and roll at the end. I'm warning you. Google it today, though. Some of you are going to hate it. The rest of you that have really good taste in music, you're welcome, okay? But listen to the lyrics of this song. I never paid attention to it before. It says this, And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never share. No one dared disturb the sound of silence. These lyrics, they're genius, first of all, And they're about a particularly bad brand of silence. They're about the kind of silence that happens when good people don't speak out about bad things. Oh, that's the kind of silence we need to disturb. But I don't want you to be in despair. There's also a lot of good kind of silence. I've noticed this. There's the good kind of silence when people walk out of a movie theater. Hundreds of people, they walk out of a movie theater after a very poignant movie, and they're in silence. I remember... I was getting ready to go in years ago to Schindler's List. Remember that movie? If you haven't seen that, you should watch Schindler's List, okay? And I'm getting ready to go in, and the movie crowd was coming out of the theater I was going to go in, and they had to clean it first. And it was a huge theater, and they were coming out of it, and nobody was talking. There was no laughing. There was no talking. There was no sound. People came out, and the only sound was a couple of people crying. That was it. And they walked completely out of the movie theater in front of me in this deep silence. But it wasn't an eerie silence. It wasn't a bad silence. It was a good silence. It was an appropriate silence for what they'd just seen. There's also the good silence when you're out in nature and you see something so beautiful it takes your breath away and it fills you with such awe you don't dare even speak. Then, of course, there's the good silence of a holy moment, a moment where you're acutely aware of the presence of God and his nearness in your life. I had one just the other day, right before Christmas. I'm standing in my kitchen, and this thought enters my head, and I know it's from God and not from me because I wasn't smart enough to make this thought up, okay? And the thought was so comforting, I instantly felt, it's hard to explain, I felt held somehow. I felt gathered up, and I was all by myself. And the moment I was so grateful for it, silence was the only response I had. I couldn't respond with any words for a while. I did later, but at first I was just silence. So yeah, there's good silence and there's bad silence. 
Jesus, after this 18-year silent period, though, look what happened in his life next. Please hear me on this. Pay attention to me, because this is what will happen to your life after you spend time in silence, too. The first thing is, he heard the Father's voice. As I mentioned before, Jesus, at his baptism, baptism, heard the Father's voice speaking to him. You're my son. You're loved, and you are so good. That's what he heard. This can happen for us too. We can hear the Father speaking to us. We can hear God affirming his love for us. The problem isn't with him talking. He's always communicating. The problem is with us listening. Ask yourself this. I had to ask myself this, and honestly, the answer is no in my life right now, and I want to change that. Ask yourself this question. Does my schedule in life look like that of a person who wants to hear the voice of God. Let me say that one more time. Catch this. Does my schedule in life look like the life of a person who wants to hear the voice of God? In order for us to answer yes to that question, we've got to set apart times in our life to be silent so the chaos and the urgency and the noise don't drown out his voice. Because without silence, all we're doing is really strolling in the shallows of God's presence. But with silence comes hearing, and with hearing comes intimacy with God. And with intimacy with God comes a depth in our relationship with Him. And by the way, sometimes when you are silent and you're hearing, trying to hear God's voice, He'll actually answer you with more silence. Now sometimes this is not good. Sometimes it's because your monkey mind is so busy, you need to sit there for another 20 minutes until you calm down enough to actually be able to hear God's voice and not just the craziness in your own head, right? But other times it's good. When God answers you with more silence, it's good. Don't be discouraged because silence is a sign of true intimacy. You know you're closely connected to a person when you can sit in the same room with them and not say a word, and be completely fine, and love the moment. You know you're in a good relationship then, okay? It's the same with God. Sometimes in the silence, we try to hear his voice, and all we get is silence, and that's because God's going, hey, I'm just going to sit here and enjoy the silence with you. Let's just be together. Oh, that's so great, all right? Second thing that happened in the life of Jesus after the silent years was this. He resisted temptation. This is out of Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Let me read this. Or just by verse 4, sorry. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Hello, okay, because he hadn't had food for a while. The tempter, the devil, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. So he's being tempted to not believe in his true identity. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or comes out of the mouth of God. When we're being tempted, what's really happening in every single temptation, no matter what it is, is we're being lured into some sort of behavior or thinking or action that is really not us. It doesn't fit with our identity. There's a guy named St. John of Kronstadt. I've mentioned him before in sermons because I admire him. He, went, he lived years ago, and he went to the people of his community in the wee hours of the morning after they had been involved in all kinds of bars and brothels and debauchery and all kinds of stuff. And he would look at them and talk to them, 
he would actually pick up some people that had passed out in the streets, and he wouldn't judge them. He would say these words to them, this is beneath your dignity. You are meant to house the fullness of God. He would recall to them what their real identity was. When Jesus resists the temptation that the devil brought his way, check out what he said again. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What were the most recent words he'd heard proceeding from the mouth of God? Again, it was those words at his baptism. That was the last words he heard God speak. You're my son, you're loved, you are good. Jesus heard words that reaffirmed his identity and his sonship so he was able to resist temptation because this life of hedonism and narcissism that the devil brought to him, which is what was happening there, Jesus said no to that because he knew that doesn't fit with who I am. We can resist temptation too, no matter how tempting it is, when we hear the voice of God reaffirming the fact that we are deeply loved children of God, then we get to say no to anything that doesn't fit with that identity, that's beneath that identity, that just isn't us. I want to put up a quote in just a second. Not quite yet, Patrick, though. It's a quote of um, Anne Lamott. She's an author. I've been reading her latest book. And she's so honest. That's why I like her writing. And she tells about a particularly bad day, and I can just relate to how she's feeling. Look what she writes. (laughs) So great. On a bad day, I'm pushing old ladies out of the way on the Titanic so I can get to the lifeboats. They're old. They're going to die anyway. (laughs) And I, I read that. Some of you don't think that's funny, but I did. Because on my bad days, I have the same kind of attitude. On my bad days, I can become so selfish and so impatient. But in those moments, God reminds me, Tim, that's not who you really are. That kind of behavior, that kind of self-centeredness, that's not who you really are. And in that moment, I'm finally able to resist temptation. So, Jesus went through an 18-year silent period. But look what he came out of it with. He came out of it with, this ability in this time where he heard God's voice to him, where his identity was reaffirmed and where he could resist temptation. Those things will happen in us. That's the gift that silence will give to us this year. So after the noise of the holidays and the chaos of the holidays, I urge you, set apart some time for silence. Let me pray for us.